1: The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So,
0: dressed listeners, as you know, April recently joined me for the Southwestern Association for Indian Arts or SWAIA's 100th annual Indian Market in Santa Fe, where we had April, I think you'll agree with me, a fun filled weekend of everything from fashion exhibitions to fashion shows. We even went and saw a flamenco performance, which is mm-hmm. not related to <laughs> Indian Market, but we had so much fun. So, the fashion shows are actually where we saw the debut of today's guest, Orlando Duguay's first menswear collection. And let me tell you, dress listeners, it was so incredibly stunning. I mean, I've long been a fan of Orlando's work. He brings the most impeccable hand skill and hand craftsmanship to his work. You know, we're talking about hand timbre beading, embroidery, hand-dyed fabrics. This collection actually had handmade knits and then these amazing glittering bomber jackets that were perfection. I'm basically just a huge fan of what he does. And I know our listeners will be too after today's conversation.
1: And as we will learn today, Orlando's often glittering and luminescent work draws inspiration from Starlight. He is currently living and working in Santa Fe, but he is originally from Gray Mountain, Arizona, on the Navajo Nation. And it is here that he learned how to bead at the age of just six years old and spent countless nights staring at the vastness of the starry skies when spending the summers on his paternal grandparents' sheep ranch. As his website tells us, quote, "...the stars hold deep meaning to the Diné people, songs and prayers passed down through generations of astronomical knowledge."
0: Yeah, and he talks about how this is coupled with the phrase, quote, walk in beauty, which he tells us is a way of being in harmony with all that's around you. A state of grace is the foundation of the Orlando Dugay brand. Beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty below me, beauty above me, beauty all around me. I walk in beauty. And, you know, he has this incredible range of garments that are all made by hand, woven, you know, of wool, sewn of cotton, silk. And then he uses traditional techniques, like I talked about embroidery, dyeing, weaving. And he talks about how all this adorns the bodies and how it's always been a part of Navajo culture. Quote, and a commitment to continuing those traditions and sharing them with women is evident in the extravagant fashion created at Orlando Dugay.
1: It is this commitment to high-quality, handcrafted design that we love to celebrate here on Dressed, and Orlando's work is no exception. Orlando is not just a fashion designer, he is an artist and a storyteller. And we are so excited to go behind the scenes and learn all about his process and inspiration. Orlando, welcome to Dressed. Orlando, it's such a pleasure to have you on
0: Dressed with us. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: So I'm such a fan and admirer of your work for many, many years now, and I'm excited at this opportunity just to learn more about you and what you do and what inspires you. I'd love to hear about what inspired your initial interest in fashion and creating garments. Do you have, for instance, an earliest memory of clothing and or textiles growing up?
2: Well, one of my earliest memories of garment making is um, seeing my grandmother's make their own clothing back on the Navajo Nation. They used to do everything by hand. One of my grandmothers, I really remember her having a an old Singer uh, treadle foot sewing machine. And I just recently got my hands on a photo of her in the last several years of her actually sewing on the machine, making her clothes. So that's one of my earliest uh, memories of garment making. And also just as I was growing up, going to ceremonies, spending a lot of time with my grandparents, I was one of those kids that... Went home with my grandparents a lot in the summertime and my parents and I, um, we always went visiting different family members. I guess that's what was traditionally done. So you could be there to help different members of the family to do whatever needs to be done or just to visit um, and hear stories. But um, going to ceremonies was another thing that I always remember because um, everyone would dress up so beautifully in these colorful velvet blouses and uh, shirts and satin dresses and uh, skirts and a lot of jewelry and just really well-dressed and their hair really nicely done and just presenting themselves really well is something that I always remember growing up and then fast forward to 2009 I believe I entered my first uh Art competitions, uh, native art competitions, and I entered as in a beadwork category. So, because I I've done beading for most of my life, I learned from my paternal grandmother and my father. So, going into the art competitions, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. But um, I remember I used to f- see uh, fashion magazines here and there. Like I wasn't a follower of fashion, but. I would pick up a magazine here and there just because the cover looks so beautiful. And i would just flip through and I remember seeing, I mean, of course, all the editorials and um, clothes and things. But I always remember these tiny little sparkly clutches, like evening bags. And I thought, you know, I could do something so small and dainty. And but then I was I was trying to incorporate the technique of beading that I used to that I learned as a kid. And it just was not quite working out the way I wanted to. I was trying to do these. I I love flowers. And so the petal was not coming out the way I wanted it to. There wasn't enough detail in it. So I took everything apart and started back on it again. And this time I did a one bead at a time, uh, stitching every single bead. And so it's like painting with beads. And so it allowed me to to turn the bead this way and turn the bead that way and tack every single one and get all this detail into it. So this petal comes to life. And so all that work, like one flower, could be about maybe, what, three inches by three inches? And so I was uh, really putting a lot of effort into it. So that's how I started in art markets, the art shows, art competitions. And then when I uh, did my first art show in Oklahoma, and then my second art show was in Phoenix, Arizona, the Herd Museum. And then my third art show was the santa fe Indian market uh swaya here in santa fe it was probably 2010 was the first year that i came here to Indian market and there was a clothing competition it wasn't a fashion show but a clothing competition and it allowed you to enter one piece so i thought i had this idea in my mind so this is my third art competition i had never been to an art show before and, you know i i sewed before um uh, making my own regalia and things for myself and dresses for my sister and my niece later, but I didn't know anything about garment construction, garment making, pattern making, draping, but I had a sketch of a a dress that I wanted to do. And it was a floral uh, dress, um, beaded floral dress. And so I just decided I went and bought a dress for him at Joanne Fabrics and (laughs) just, just did it. You know, I didn't know what to do, but I just did it. I completed it and then I ended up winning a first place um, award on that. The following year I did a second and third place and then the third year after that I was invited to do a to be part of a family's um, show that they were putting on at the Museum of uh, Contemporary Native Art here in Santa Fe and I was a little afraid because I, I was doing everything by hand. I wasn't using a sewing machine at all. I was sewing everything by hand. All the beading of course is by hand and and I told them I can only do three pieces and they said, oh yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Just, you know, that's okay. And so I entered, I submitted the three pieces and we showed. And then, uh, at that point is when I decided that I wanted to pursue clothing design and fashion. And so that's how I got started in what I'm doing now. And I just kind of, from then on, I just learned everything I could on my own. I learned a lot more hand stitches, uh, I learned more about draping. I just practice, practice, and then uh, pattern making. I watched a lot of videos and books, and read a lot. And then even beating, I did learn different techniques. And then I eventually learned tambour beating, because that's what the the tour houses did. And then I also saw some videos from India, uh, all the different types of beating there, in Russia, and so I. I mean, I just research and research. And then I just learned to do it because I wanted to do these elaborate pieces and uh, I couldn't do it with the style of beading that I knew how to do. So, yeah.
0: That's amazing. So I I, mean, I obviously had no idea you're almost entirely self-taught is what it sounds like. You had a foundation with your beading that you learned as a, as a young person and you were exposed to sewing and the creation of garments. But this is something that you continue to pursue into your adult life and taught yourself is what you're telling me. And this is remarkable when you see, especially the level of craftsmanship and quality that you bring to your work. It's remarkable. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the technical skills that you bring to your work and why this commitment to the high level of skill and artistry is really important to you.
2: I mean, like I said, I didn't know anything. So it was a lot of trial and error. So I made several garments where when I look at them now, I'm, I'm cringing because I'm like, oh my gosh, I made that and I actually showed it to people. <laughs> <laughs> we progress, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, um, If I didn't do those pieces, then I wouldn't have learned how to do better. And, but each time it was you know, I always improved on it from the last um, time I did something similar, like just the inside structures of something like a dress was a, a really big thing that I was not super aware of how to do, but I did work for my father, who is a construction contractor, and so he built houses from the ground up. and so I just took that i you know what I knew about building a house, you know, you have to have a good frame, right? And so those are the kinds of things that I thought about when I was doing the construction of a garment is okay, so then it needs to stand up this way and not collapse that way. and and so, I mean, a lot of trial and error, so it's it was a lot of fun and a lot of work. and then just. Doing like hidden stitches, like uh, blind stitches was a lot of fun to do because uh, you can have something hold together without seeing a stitch somewhere. And so it just sort of looks like it's somehow sitting there um, attached to the rest of the garment and holding against the body. And it's always so satisfying to do the blind stitch.
0: I think that's one of my favorite stitches to do because it just seamlessly disappears. It's like magic
2: it's really, I mean, it's just a lot of fun. And then each time I learned something new, a new, new technique, a new stitch, I mean, it's just, it just opened up a whole lot more things. And so that's how I've I've been uh, learning this whole time, just trying it out, learning as, you know, researching as much as I can. And um, I mean, like, I never found one book or one source of information that covered everything. So you a long article for something and you get that one tiny little <laughs> bit of information and you do another, another one, same thing and a little tiny piece of information. And, um, but going through all the other material to get to that one bit of information, you know, it, it was a lot of fun just learning about all the different things, how things worked in different workshops and yeah, just like the materials they use, just the history of, of something and whatever, um, house, uh, um, of whatever that they did, and uh feather working was another one that was really fun to to learn about and feathers are you know significant to our culture navajo people, so I mean it's just constantly learning and um never you know just being satisfied with what I've learned and then staying with it so yeah, and the reason why I think I'm like this is because of going back to my grandparents, they did everything from hand by hand and um They put the utmost care to it in it to produce something, whether it's for themselves or for a family member. And so I think about garment making in the same way. It's just um, you want to present something that is going to be beautiful, that the person who you're making it for is going to appreciate. And whoever else um, sees it, sees the person that's wearing it, you know, can appreciate it as well. And so, I mean, in my family, we have weavers, um, bead workers, silversmiths, people who made buckskin, made uh, moccasins, you know, like everything was done and like through that. I mean, like take uh, weaving, for instance, you know, my grandparents, they have their own, they raise their own sheep, you know, um, they would uh, shear the sheep, they care for the sheep, you know, they raise the sheep, care for the sheep and shear it and uh, clean and process the wool dye it, spin it into a a workable yarn and then set up a loom and then weave it into a garment or into something that's going to be a floor covering or a a wall hanging. And all the care and attention to detail has always been there. And and it's in my blood, just not in a fashion way. Right. You know, my family didn't grow up in fashion and no one in my family did. But the craftsmanship is where I've always noticed in, in my family, in a lot of uh, Indigenous communities, it's always have been there. And um, we just don't see it from from that point of view, of a fashion point of view. And so I think that's probably how I choose to do the things that the way I do.
0: Yeah. And, it's, and artists like yourself are just so refreshing in today's day and age. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you and learn more about your work is because In a day and age, and this is what we talk about a lot on the podcast of like fast fashion and this constant turnover of new and, you know, that gets lost a lot of times. And so to see people like yourself who are paying so much attention to why hand craftsmanship matters and who bring the history and the cultural influences and the family ties into what you do, it's so beautiful and it's such a beautiful reminder of why it's important to care about the quality of your clothing Looking back over your career and looking back over all of your work, how would you describe or characterize your clothing?
2: When I first started, I I started in a special occasion because if we go back to me telling you about my childhood and growing up with my grandparents and going to ceremony, being exposed to that culture that far, um, that deep into it, because I'll... Not all of these things happened at night, but a lot of them did. And so that's why I chose evening wear, if you know, or a special occasion, because of that, that those things happening at night. And then uh, a lot of time it's you know, there's a fire in the center of the of the room. And so you have like the light flickering off of um fabric or off of jewelry and um it's always something that's always in the back of my mind when I create something it is that I think a lot of evening gowns that were done in European fashion before electricity a lot of the rooms were lit by candlelight and so you play with the with the light and I think it's kind of the same thing just uh, on a different continent (laughs) so yeah uh, that's what I classified it now I guess but um you know, I did my first men's collection. So, and that kind of goes from day to evening. And um, so I think it's it's going to just keep going as how it goes and we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and do you have a driving philosophy behind each collection or does that evolve as well? I've read, you know, you have that beautiful poem that you often talk about, Walking in Beauty, which I think is just so um, beautiful and poetic. So there, you really bring a lot of that into what you do as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's... Um, I don't, I don't want to say it's religious, but it, it's, it's dressing for the holy people is the way that I look at things. It's the way you show your respect for yourself in front of um, the holy beings, but also for res- respect for the people you come in contact with. And so that's, that's the way I sort of see, that is the way I see everything when I'm designing something is, is just showing respect. Because, for me, respect is a, a very big thing. And I try to be as respectful as possible with with within everything I do, you know, and I think that's where the philosophy for what I do comes into play.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about the cultural influences that you incorporate in your work? I've heard you talk in a couple different instances about kind of incorporating, Symbolic influences from origin stories and your culture, which wouldn't be, you know, obvious to anyone who who wasn't familiar with them. Um, Maybe in context of your 2020 collection, which is how I was first introduced to your work, because this collection was absolutely sublime. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so the 2020 collection, yeah, the pandemic, it really, the entire world experienced this thing together at the same time. And we're all stuck at home and we're all worried about our families back home. I mean, my family's six and a half hours away and um, within driving distance. But, you know, we couldn't go anywhere we, we, no one knew what was happening. But anyway, I was missing my grandparents. I thought about them a lot because and I, I was thinking about my childhood, all the things that I had experienced with them. And what was super scary is because on the Navajo Nation, the death rate was really, really high. For some reason, and um, maybe it's just because we're all, you know, we have generational home lives, Mm -hmm. where we have grandparents and grandchildren, they're all living together in some places, or they live really close by. And so uh, maybe that's why the death rate was so high. But you know, it was scary, because all my grandparents are from my whole family's back there. And not being able to do anything about it, um, and, and how to help except uh, make sure that they stay. And my, my paternal grandparents, for instance, they live way, way out in the back country, really close to the Grand Canyon. So they're, you know, pretty, we're pretty protected. And uh, my other grandparents, you know, they live closer to more populated areas. But thinking about them and just worrying about them, uh, I thought about my life growing up and all the things that I experienced and um, all the ceremonies that I have seen and witnessed. And every, all of those ceremonies are always prayers for healing and protection. And it just seemed very, it just kind of fit together to do that. A collection that was based on a story that we're, you know, we're taught about protection, healing. And the story is about, warrior twins twin boys who are children of the sun and they go to their father the sun, uh who puts them through a series of tests to prove that they're in fact uh his sons and um so they pass and he gives them weapons to help fight these monsters that are killing the net people on on earth and so there's a weapon made of uh, lightning it's a lightning bolt and another um, arrow made of sunlight, flint armor. And so those are like some things that I took from that story and put um, on the dresses. Um, There's one dress, for instance, has a zigzag arrow around just under the bust, and then another arrow, a straight arrow below that, and then another zigzag under that uh, that wraps around the entire torso of the body. And to me, that was protection for the wearer. You know, so I'm taking these these uh, the the story uh, of this hero twins and the weapons that were given to them to protect the people. So I put that into the into the collection in that way. Um, I did a design and that was like a grid, like a diamond pattern that I did all over uh, a, a few dresses. And the, the diamond pattern represented the flint um, armor that was given to them as well as for protection. And so those are the kinds of things that I went through thought about. And when I came up with the designs, and then I came out with the uh, embroidery patterns, beading patterns to, to to put on the dresses. But um, it just kind of, I think with that collection was the one of the very first times where I actually really incorporated my background um, a little more openly than um, I have uh, done in the past. But it took uh, like nine, eight, nine years to get to that point. I think maybe the confidence of the years of work that I've done were finally starting to release uh into the clothing that i was working and so uh, that's where that kind of started is um because of, of the pandemic you know it's a it's a terrible thing that happened but um it it also reinforced your connection to home and for me so that's that's how that started
0: yeah absolutely and again i mean this that collection was how i first saw your work and it's it's so incredibly beautiful. And then to learn that you're doing almost all of this work and correct me if I'm wrong, but all this work by yourself, all of this hand beating work, I've seen videos of you doing the timbre beating. It's just incredibly remarkable. You don't have like an atelier of workers working for you. You're doing all of this by yourself. So you're really putting so much of yourself in it than say, you know, and other designers who have this huge team working for them, which I think just makes it that much more personal and beautiful and intimate. Can you talk a little bit more about the beading process? I've seen multiple videos of you doing it. It's so beautiful for listeners who might not know what timbre beating is. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think it's incredible that you taught yourself. So maybe you'll inspire someone else to, to pick it up as well.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, all the beading and embroidery, I do myself. The last few years, I've had one uh, one or two people who would come in, like one person for sure, my friend Violet. I
0: know Violet. She's a friend of mine.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, Violet Don Ami. Yeah, yeah she's like, uh, she would come in and help me like sew. She'll do some hand stitching w- with me and... Um, that year was the first time I was in this workspace, and this is a converted garage. There was no window, and that was one of the hottest years, and it was like a hundred and something in this room. And Violet were in here, both sweating away. Um, <laughs> Blood sweat and tears, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're a real sweatshop, and I just wanted to you know say Violet's name because uh, you know she she does help me, but but the beating and embroidery is something that I do all by myself. And the tambour beating, I, you know, like you said, I did learn all of that on my own. I, again, just research, 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 and just learned how to do everything, tying up the screen. I mean, like I didn't have a professional screen uh, frame to to tie up the fabric, the silk. So I went to the hardware store and got several pieces of lumber and drilled holes into them and uh, put some silk uh, fabric. Uh, you know, I, I bound some silk fabric and stretched it on the frame, and you know, a tambour part comes from tambourine because uh, apparently the silk was stretched taut like a tambourine drum, and so oh. that's where it uh, comes from. Yeah, and then the hook, uh, crochet hook, uh, needle, the tambour hook, it's it's a pretty, uh, it's a lot. Of, you have to have a lot of hand dexterity. Uh, to to bring the thread up through and back up to the top and and catch a, you know, stitch a bead at the same time. And there's several different ways to do it Um, from the face side. So you're looking at the beads on the top side or from the bottom side. I think that a lot of the French houses bead from the, with the beading attaching from the bottom. And then in like Russia, I think a lot of them do it from the top side, but both ways. Um, I think both of those two places interchange how it's going to go. I guess it depends on the design because some are so intricate that you have to do it from the top. And then you're adding the beads to the needle and then going down into the fabric and grabbing the thread to pull it back up. So essentially you're doing a chain stitch with this needle. And then in India, they do it from the top side, and they are so fast—it's insane. Well, maybe I'm thinking like, do they are they like, uh, you know, doubling up speed? <laughs> uh, they're, they're just really, Practice. really fast. Yeah, and I have met a couple of people from India um, who represent um, different workshops in India, and you know, gave me their card to contact if I, you know, ever wanted beating done. But um, I've never. Done yeah, so um, the beading, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different process. Um, it allows you to work on really delicate fabrics like uh, silk chiffon, silk uh, organza, even heavy silks or wool even. Um, you can probably even do leather, but it, it allows you to work on, on really fine fabrics and you can change that into a three-dimensional piece because you're working on a full fabric before it's been cut out. So it, it really changes a lot of things.
0: Yeah, that's what I find so remarkable about it is that you're working in this like flat surface and then it becomes this three-dimensional piece once you put it into its form, its dressed form.
2: And when it gets to that finishing part, like you, I get so excited and I take it off the, the frame and I'm like putting it on a dress form just to like, I'm pinning it here, here, here. Just the I'm like, I'm so impatient. But um, yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: And how long does a piece like, a beta a piece like that usually take you?
2: Uh, It depends on how much there is. And sometimes it seems like doing a straight line of beads, just a long straight line, seems super easy and will not take you very long. But sometimes those are the longest ones. (laughs) But um, let me see. One of the pieces that I did, for instance, there was one that was black with um, an asymmetrical detail on the left side of the body. And there was gold work embroidery on one side. And then the rest of the garment was pieced together by scrap fabric. That was another thing for this collection that goes back to my grandparents. Um, My grandparents didn't throw anything away, no matter what it was like fabrics. A lot of fabrics, for instance, were kept into little bags. And that's what I also do. I don't throw anything away unless they're too, too tiny to be used. And those go in the garbage, but, or the cotton goes in the recycle bin, but pieced together fabric. And then uh, where the seams came together, um, all of that was connected by beading and wow. then there was the embroidery that represented uh the whole dress design sort of represented the Mother Earth and Father Sky in a culture. And then the of course the arrows were on their gold work, um gold metal embroidery, which I also learned um on my own. So something, I think that dress took maybe, oh my gosh, it took I'd say about three or four weeks. Because in between I'm still doing a lot of um, all the other pieces I have like I have three three different dresses, three different garments going on at the same time and I'll work on one for half the day and then I switch over to the other other garment but I do have timesheets for for them but once they reach over 100 hours then I just stop counting anymore right um, because then the the prices just start going insane <laughs> yeah. when it comes to pricing,
0: Needless to say, if our listeners haven't picked up on this yet, you do made to order pieces. You do not necessarily do ready to wear, although I think you do maybe have a couple pieces, maybe some of your Net T shirts, if I'm not mistaken, but you do made to order. Like these are all custom pieces. You, of course, do the one off for the runway, and then people order from there. I want to transition into your most recent collection that I just saw at Swaya's 100th year anniversary. Um, But before we dive into your menswear debut, I want to talk about the one women's dress that you featured in the finale. Because if I'm not mistaken, that was a dress that you were commissioned to create for an exhibition at the Museum of International Folk Art Museum in Santa Fe, the red that colored the world. And you, you dyed that dress using cochineal red I'd love if you could talk to us a little bit about the hand dyeing technique that you used and just a little bit more about that dress specifically.
2: Oh, yeah. Cochineal. I love working with Cochineal. That was my first time working with Cochineal. I had learned about Cochineal when I was working at a gallery on Canyon Road here in, in Santa Fe. You know, I grew up around textiles all my life. And you would think that I know a lot about Navajo textiles, but... Going to a gallery, working in a gallery and seeing all these different from different regions of the Navajo Nation. Um, so different because my family did a certain style, all, you know, growing up uh, co- uh, like a handful of styles. But learning about Cochineal was pretty neat. Um, the history of it coming from South America and traveling around to Europe and then spreading all over the world. And then coming back to North America in a cloth called Bayetta cloth from Italy that was red. And what the Navajo women did is take that cloth and unravel it and re-spin the yarn into uh, yarn that they preferred, and then wove those into textiles for dresses and for wearing robes. And these wearing robes were highly prized. Um, They were traded to other tribes all along all in North America and they became to be called uh, chiefs robes. Um, A certain style was referred to as a Ute style robe um, because the, the, I guess the Ute people preferred this uh, certain color uh, combination. So this red was, it's sparingly used, but if you found a textile that had a lot of red in it, that had been pretty, maybe a pretty well off to do uh, a well-to-do family because to get that much red through trade, you know, um, it's a it's a it's a big deal.
0: And the red comes from a bug, we should say. Cochineal comes from a little bug. So to get all of that red, to create something to dye an entire garment, it's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, it's and it's only the female cactus beetle that you get to drive the red color from. And you know, cochineal is used was used. It there was a big controversy with Starbucks, I think,
0: because they used it in their one of their the drinks. Strawberry drinks. The, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, but it's also in lipstick it's in cosmetics and in pink grapefruit juice when I did this collection I had learned about Nil and I just was fascinated by the color red and the history behind it and then um I was at a party and someone from the folk art museum was there heard from someone that was there, because I was talking to them about the collection I was coming up with. And uh, the whole idea was this made-up um, matriarchal society that, like Chaco Canyon, they these women ran this society, this civilization, and they everything they wore was red, and it was dyed in color. Cochineal. And so if you can imagine Chaco Canyon, the walls at Chaco and um, the bright red and gold uh, against that background, was just mind blowing for me. And so um, I had this whole idea, this editorial in my head that where this collection came about. So they heard about it. Carmela Padilla came to me, the um, guest curator of that exhibition. And we met and talked and she picked, um, she looked at my sketches and she picked one and said, so let's do this one. And then I went about doing it, but I had like three months, I think to do it. It was such a short time. And uh, I, so I didn't, I hadn't even researched the dyeing process yet. And so I was spending hours a weeks trying to get these different dyes and what kind of fabric. I mean, of course it was all silk. So, um, and the silk fabric took dye really, really well. And, um, I even unraveled the silk threads and dyed that in cochineal and respun it onto the f- spools, used it in the machines to do the long stitches, but I also used it to do the beading and embroidery with. Wow. So the entire dress is dyed in cochineal, even the threads. The, you know, the, the idea for the collection, the inspiration was uh, this, this uh, civilization in the desert. And so everything depends on water. Um, and it's still kind of the same way now. And so, out here in the Southwest, right? We pray for rain, and we, you know, dealers. There's, there's dances from the different pueblos that uh, dance for rain, and and so this is all of this comes back to this called the story for this collection. And so, all the motifs come from pueblo pottery designs that have to do with water. They're not exact replicas of them, but you know, the inspiration for those designs comes from those pottery. So this whole entire dress is like um, I titled it the red lady because of my mother, it's named for my mother. And that, that name goes back in history to the 1800s because, uh, and it's kind of given to uh, a woman with red hair in my, on my mother's side of the family. There's a whole other story about that, but that's what the dress is named for. And, um, and what was also really uh, interesting to, because I was di- designing uh, dresses for women, the color red was only derived from a female beetle, and so it was. Um, it was just kind of just worked out that way. I don't know. And <laughs> the color red is, is such a beautiful color. You can get anywhere from blush pink to black.
0: Wow! Yeah, absolutely stunning dress. It was a surprise and very um, wonderful surprise to see it on the runway a couple weeks ago. And just to give our listeners an idea of like the oat luxury of your garments, I just want to read the materials, composition of this dress. Hand-dyed silk duchess satin, silk organza and silk thread, cut glass and sterling silver beads, French coil, Swarovski crystals, vintage beads and crystals, lining of duchess satin and tulle. So every element of these gowns um, and each element of every piece that you produce is so thoughtfully created with such high level of skill and high quality materials. And this was all on view at Swaya a couple of weeks ago when we saw your debut menswear collection. Can you talk to us about the collection, um, starting perhaps with what inspired this first foray into menswear?
2: So I've been thinking about doing menswear for a while, but, um, you know, this is my 11th year of designing clothes. So I thought, okay, now is the time. And then also it was Swaya's 100th annual, uh, you know, their centennial. and. Um, this was kind of just, it just happened to happen this way. But um, the inspiration for this collection, again, is from the Twin Warrior story. And so all of the different things are spread throughout the collection. And then the Coach Neil also is uh, sprinkled throughout the collection. So it's sort of like this lifeline that goes through the entire collection. We did um, Coach Neil in the hand-knit um, sweaters that were all sourced locally and dyed here in Santa Fe, in New Mexico. Some of the knitted gloves were also all done in Coach Neal as well, but the inspiration goes to those warrior twins. And with Native designers where we never, I mean, like there's, there's so many of us now and a lot of it's still for women. And I was thinking, you know, like I've been wanting to do men's wear for a while. And, um, I just thought that it, it would be a nice way to show my version of how I would do menswear for, for people. And um, it's not specifically meant for just native people, but it's, it has sort of uh, like the sweaters are, um they're kind of, they're chunky sweaters. They're all hand knit. So they're, they're not super fine knits and the design, some of the designs come from old wearing robes. And then again, the Flint armor and the, motifs are in the sweaters as well and i wanted to pair them with uh native jewelry um but i didn't want it to be silver and turquoise and because i want to show that we can still have an entire outfit made with indigenous designers but it doesn't have to look like an indigenous clothing designer i don't know how to say that without offending anyone but um uh, so my we have some friends, um, Yossi Johnson and Gail Bird. Yossi Johnson is Navajo and Gail Bird is Laguna and uh, Santo Domingo Pueblo. And they create this amazing jewelry in uh, 18 karat gold. And they use pearls, wow. they use jackets, They they use these um, hand sculptured stones from this uh, German stone designer. So I, we I asked them if they would, you know, like accessorize my show and, I was so surprised that they said yes, and um, but I, I was thrilled because they they never do this for people, and they were at one point kicked out of Swaiya Indian Market in their in the 70s, I think, because their jewelry was not native enough, and was not native looking enough. But you know that was back then, and finally the the standards changed, and then they were allowed to to come back. But the jewelry, pairing it with the sort of like because I what the way I saw the collection was it was dark and moody and elegant. And you know, because even um I, I always want to carry that elegance over into the menswear. So again, that hojon, the beauty, the physical part of it, but also the the balance and harmony part of it. It all still comes over into the menswear uh, because it doesn't it doesn't have a gender. It's a it it's for everything that that's living. So uh that's sort of what i was thinking about when i was coming up with this collection is just creating elegance um and, and still have that mood like during the day when it's storming out you know how just that feeling of the wetness the dampness in the air and then the way the color changes you know it's just a, it's a really moody and so um that's kind of what i was that's what i was thinking about when i i did this collection and um the jeweler just set it off um you know the, the guys were wearing pearls, uh, um, I teamed up with Prados Beauty to come up with makeup looks for the, all the models and the local knitters that knit my sweaters. They have these um, fingerless gloves and I you know, incorporate that because the other thing I wanted to do was um, pair up with local artisans and craftspeople. One of the coats I did, a uh, this one, we uh, literally took the story. I collaborated with a painter named um, Ryan Singer from Albuquerque. He's Navajo. He's Diné. But He's also distantly related to me. Uh, his father is from the same place my family's from, and so it was just kind of something that came together. And we decided to collaborate. I asked him if he wanted to collaborate, and so we came up with a embroidered and hand painted coat. He did a couple of warriors in his own interpretation with a monster on the back, and I did these um, gold work embroidered suns on the front and the back, which took forever to do. And um, this is a secret, that... I didn't finish the coat. It's just enough to get it on the runway. But uh, the inside still was, I'm not done. It's not lined. so
0: That's the reality of of work to runway. <laughs> as long as it looks like it's finished, right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> we are there none the wiser like, oh, until you told that. us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the most stunning pieces in your collection is this you know, it's like a two-toned coat, I guess, maybe. Like, the top is black, and then the bottom is white, and it reveals this hand-painted scene. And then this stunning embroidered sun, um, and that embroidered sun motif is in a couple different jackets. There's this sparkling bomber coat number that I want personally. Yes. Um, so beautiful. And it's like one of those moments where they're walking towards you on the runway, and then you it's like the... <gasps> you know, aha moment when they turn around and you see this gorgeous embroidered sun. So such an incredible job and no luxury and no elegance lost um, in this transition to menswear. I think it had your signature all over it in so many ways.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it was was a lot of fun. I mean, like, I don't know. And then the pants, all the trousers, they were so much work into one of those. Um, One of them, I know took like 15 hours to make a brocade one.
0: And such attention to detail. I did notice the red thread detail in some of the pants. Again, these are sorts of things that you would never see immediately, but it's those sorts of like small details that just make your garments so wonderful and so appreciated, I'm sure, by all of your clients who get to the joy of wearing them.
2: Those trousers are, they're all um, Hong Kong finished. They're all bound uh, edges and those are all in silk habitat in a maroon red uh, color. Wow. It goes on to inside. And then the facings and uh, some of the pocket linings are cut from old uh, cotton shirts by, from my me and my partner's closet. So we're wow. throwing them away. We got, had them cut up and, and put into the fabric. So I'm mean, into the trousers.
0: What's a Hong Kong finish? I've never heard of that.
2: Um, it's, uh, it's a lot done in, in tailoring. Um, Interesting. The, the edges, the raw edges uh, are bound. So they're wrapped uh, with a bias cut fabric. In this case, we used um, habotai, And so it has a really clean finish. So when you look inside, it's like, it's re- just as beautiful. And it's in contrast. So it, it, you can see it even more. And then uh, the high waist trousers without the waistband, you know, the more traditional high waist. Those are all uh, button fly closure. And it's oh, beautiful. I just, it, button fly is it's just like, wow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You did an absolutely stunning job. And I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to talk to us today about your incredible career. I am flabbergasted that you've only been doing this, I think you said, for like 11 or 12 years. Um, it's so incredible to hear about your journey and your progression and how you've self taught yourself. I mean, that's so inspiring. In closing, can you just tell people maybe where they can learn more about your work and commission something from you or purchase something from you from one of your collections if they're interested?
2: Yeah, I have a website. It's orlandoduguy.com. And all the social media is at orlandoduguy.com. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Orlando, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Dress listeners, be sure to check out his work on his website, orlandoduguy.com, which is D-U-G-I. And follow along on his Instagram at Orlando Dugay. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you remember to walk in beauty next time you get dressed.
0: And be sure and tune in Thursday for our full coverage of our fashion-filled weekend at Swaya's 100th Annual Indian Market. And, you know, in the meantime, if you want to write to us, we love hearing from you. You can write to us with listener questions or suggestions via email at at iheartmedia.com. You can DM us on Instagram at just underscore podcast. We post images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And if you want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate
1: your support. Just like we appreciate the support of our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you with more about Indian Market on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.